Hey everyone, it's Ariel Hawani. And I'm Chuck Mendenhall. And I'm Petey Carroll, and together we are Three Pack. Join us on the brand new Spotify Live app immediately after all of the biggest fights in combat sports. And also during the weigh-ins, because that's when the real drama happens. So what are you waiting for? Follow the Ringer MMA show right now on our exclusive Spotify podcast feed. And come join the best community in MMA. Peace! We're out of here. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Try Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost, built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, incredible load times, and 24-7 WordPress priority support, your sites will be lightning fast with global reach. And with Bluehost Cloud, your sites can handle surges in traffic no matter how big. Plus, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. Get started now at Bluehost.com. Today's episode is one of my favorites of the year. Last week, I published an article in The Atlantic about the 10 greatest coolest breakthroughs of 2022. That is, what were the most interesting and important discoveries or inventions in the last year across any scientific domain? Bioscience, clean energy, vaccinology, nanotechnology, AI. What was Apex Mountain for humankind? I've said before on this show that I think there is a negativity bias in news, which results in this list being a surprise for me and for many listeners. I think it's sneaky weird that this list is a surprise, that the most important breakthroughs of the year typically come as a shock because the news media is significantly more efficient at surfacing and its readers are more efficient at sharing news that makes us afraid or outraged rather than news that makes us curious or even hopeful. For example, I'm not sure that most people know we are in a golden age of obesity therapies. Until very, very recently, most reasonable doctors did not prescribe medications or pills or injectables for weight loss. Like the term weight loss pill was very rightly a pejorative. But in just the last two years, there's been an extraordinary revolution in weight loss medication thanks to a happy accident. In the 2010s, patients on the diabetes medication semaglutide noticed something interesting. They were losing a ton of weight. And so the parent company, Novo Nordisk, looked into this and they realized that the side effect of this diabetes medication wasn't a fluke. The diabetes medication seemed to mimic naturally occurring hormones in the body that regulated the release of insulin and slowed down how fast patients' stomachs emptied. Last year, the FDA approved injectable semaglutide for weight loss under a new name, Wegovy. And this is not the only weight loss medication now in the pipeline. A similar weight loss medication called terzepatide showed an average 20% reduction in patients' body weight in the latest clinical trial. There is another 
uh, medication that Amgen is currently experimenting with. It's called AMG-133. And in phase two trials, patients on the highest dose lost more than 14% of their body weight in less than three months. So this could be the dawn of a new age. Roughly 40% of Americans are technically obese, and we know that obesity can, in many cases, increase someone's risk of heart disease, high blood pressure. And for men, as we just heard on a recent show, it seems correlated with declining sperm count as well. So this is a breakthrough worth celebrating. And also because every discovery can have positive and negative implications, I think it's a breakthrough worth watching as well. Another revolution that I think will maybe one day become synonymous with the 2020s is the incredible blowout in generative AI tools. You've got image generating apps like Stable Diffusion, Dolly 2. These turn text prompts into lush illustrations. You can say something like, you know, show me a podcast host on Venus uh, smoking a cigarette in the style of Van Gogh, and it will produce something astonishingly beautiful, weird, <laughs> inspiring. There are also large language models such as ChatGPT, which can answer complex questions, uh, spit out bespoke Wikipedia articles in seconds, write song lyrics, and even conjure mini essays. The results are quite uncanny and quite mind-blowing. So for example, I was inspired by a few tweets that I saw that got ChatGPT to write poetry and religious verse, and I gave ChatGPT a cheeky little prompt. I said, write a biblical verse in the style of the King James Bible about a Manhattan finance bro throwing up on his friends after having too many fireball shots. And in approximately eight seconds, this is what the AI wrote in response. And it came to pass that the finance bro, having imbibed too heavily of the fiery liquid, did vomit upon his companions. And great was the displeasure of the friends, for they were covered in the sick of their companion. And the finance bro did wail and gnash his teeth, for he knew that he had transgressed and brought shame upon himself. Thus saith the Lord, quote, let him who is without sin among you be the first to cast a stone at the finance bro. And with this, the friends did forgive their companion, for they too had known the temptations of the flesh and the perils of excess. Like, that is amazing. I don't know what this thing is yet. I don't know if it will ultimately evolve into being a mere toy, if it will replace me, if it will replace Google search, if it will merely be a second mind for the creative class, or if it heralds the end of the world. Whatever it is, it is a rather extraordinary feat of technology. And I think in time, we may consider it the most important breakthrough of the year. At last, today's guest is a return guest, Eli Dorado. He is an economist and a researcher and a writer who has his pulse on the, front, the frontier of invention and science as much as anybody else I know, especially across all the different domains that I want to touch on, bioscience, AI, hardware. He is our guide to the future for the next 45 minutes. And if you have half as much fun listening to Eli as I had talking to him, I think you are in for a treat. I'm Derek Thompson. This is Plain English.
Hey everybody, Derek here. The conversation you're about to listen to is about the most exciting and important scientific and technological breakthroughs of 2022. And it was recorded just days before U.S. government scientists made a breakthrough in nuclear fusion. Fusion reactions are different from fission. That's what typical nuclear power has been. It emits no carbon, produces no long-lived radioactive waste. It's an extraordinary technology that could give us limitless zero-carbon power if we can scale it, if we can get it cheaper, if we can get it widely available It's a thrilling, thrilling breakthrough that clearly would have made this podcast if the news had broken a week earlier, six months earlier, 11 months earlier. Trust me, we're going to have many more episodes about this awesome breakthrough in nuclear fusion, just not this one. Okay, please enjoy. Eli Dorado, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me on, Derek. I am more excited to do this episode than I've been in a long time. Uh, I honestly, find a lot of bad news interesting. And so I write about it a lot and I podcast about it a lot. You know, alone time is up, sperm counts are down, bad news, bad news. But we're getting close to the holiday season and I really wanted to do an episode that doesn't make me want to self-eject from the planet. And I made a promise to myself this year that I would take time in December to research and break down what I considered the most interesting and important science and technological breakthroughs of the year. I just published this big piece in The Atlantic, breaking down my top 10. In the open, just before welcoming you on, I talked a little bit about my fascination with large language models like chat, GPT. Um, I wanna save that for the end. What I wanna talk about with you, because last time we had you on the show, you gave us this incredible tour of the scientific and technological frontier. Um, I want you to walk with me through some of these incredible science and tech breakthroughs of 2022. So let's start with, uh, let's start with science. Um, Let's start with the cosmos. In July, NASA's James Webb Telescope sent back its first images of light from across the universe and with just extraordinary clarity. This showed off these nebula that looked like neon soap bubbles and craggly red mountaintops. And one of them looked like a little sort of luminescent shrimp that was floating in a black soup. I mean, just amazing, amazing images that go back as far as 13, billion years ago. Okay, so they're clearly cool. Why are they important beyond just being cool? Well, there's so many reasons. So I think that what you can do it in radio astronomy is a bunch of different things, right? You can you can um, learn more about sort of physics, right? Like the, the high, really high energy, large scale uh, stuff in the universe, right? Is, is it's, it's, you can't do it in a lab on Earth, right? It's it's just it can't be contained like that, and so um, you know the James Webb Space Telescope is going to be doing uh, all kinds of experiments that uh, take advantage of that of the sort of the the cosmos as a, like a physics laboratory, right? And then the other thing that it's going to do a lot of is looking um, more locally at uh, a lot of uh, a lot of stuff we haven't really looked at before. So I'm I'm really interested in actually looking at planets that are close by. So, so like, you know, yes, the space, the James Webb can look uh, very deep into the cosmos, but it can also look more closely to stuff that's only like, you know, 10 light years away or something like that. And you can actually start to study the atmospheres of these planets that are nearby. And that could potentially tell us, you know, are there, is, is life common or is it not common in in the cosmos right like i'm really 
curious about that question. Uh, radio astronomy has already told us that interstellar space has organic molecules right? Hundreds of organic molecules, uh, including like amino acids, including amino acids that like we have in our bodies, like that exists in interstellar space. And we know that because, uh, you know, we, we've had past, uh, past measurements, right? From, from radio telescopes, every time we get a new, uh, new instrument, a, a, a new, either a step change in, uh, in sort of resolution or, uh, or a new, or a new frequency, that we uh, get access to, uh, we discover something new about the universe. I am most fascinated by the possibility of seeing into the moments, relatively the moments, the million years after the Big Bang, to learn more about like the ultimate existential question. You know, how did it all begin? Where did time and space and matter begin? What were the conditions of the universe 13 billion years ago? How are they different than the conditions now? Was the universe ruled by a a different set of laws? Uh, can we learn maybe what those laws were by looking really, really closely at these different snapshots of 13 billion years ago? That's what most interests me. Just tell me a little bit more about like what we could learn from these exoplanets that you're describing. So like we use our telescope to stare whatever, five, 10 million, sorry, five, 10 light years away from Earth. You call this a shortish distance, but to me, it seems relatively long. Um, neither you nor I are likely to ever go there. But we're looking into these atmospheres. Maybe we're looking, we're, we're getting the, the view of these planets that in my mind, I think of it as a little bit similar to in like a Star Wars or Star Trek movie, when they show the planet sort of coming up, you start to see, you know, its color and the state of its atmosphere. What could we learn about these planets? Yeah, you, so different uh, molecules in the atmosphere are going to emit different, uh, different spectra, right? And uh, you could conceivably learn that there are you know, molecules in the atmosphere that are, you know, on Earth, or at least uh, in Earth-like environments, are telltale signatures of life, right? So we could, we could, we could sort of maybe uh, form hypotheses that, um, that some planets may have at least bacterial life on them, uh, from from looking at, at, uh, at, at these uh, atmospheres. And I think the other question is about sort of the interaction of magnetospheres and and stellar winds and so on um so uh so earth is, is fortunate to, to be have a have a magnetosphere that keeps our atmosphere from uh having been blown away over the last billion years or so right so so uh without without that that the the sort of the polarity of of the earth right the north pole the south pole the magnets uh, magnetic fields that ar arise from them uh our atmosphere would have been blown away by the by the solar wind um and so if you if you study exoplanets we could sort of get an idea of like how common is that right how common is it for an atmosphere to build up in on a rocky planet and if you ever did find a star system that had you know a bunch of magnetic field you know a bunch of planets with magnetic fields and all of them had atmospheres in them and you know what would be they what they might have interesting signatures and so on that could be a, a sign of a terraforming civilization right I, you know you could have you could find you know like if 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 i found like improbably that like one star you know have some base rate uh, infer some base rate from your other observations if you found improbably that one star system had a bunch of planets that had atmospheres and and magnetospheres um that would be a sign of something interesting that we would want to go check out
I would say so. Yeah, that sounds pretty thrilling. All right, let's move to the next breakthrough that I want to talk about, which is a breakthrough around the disease multiple sclerosis. Um, there was a study done by a team of scientists that looked at a large group of military service members, and it concluded that there was very strong evidence that the Epstein-Barr virus, EBV, which is best known for causing mononucleosis, might be a leading cause of MS, multiple sclerosis. Infection with EBV raised the odds of developing MS by a factor of 30. Now, many, many people get EBV. Many people contract this virus. Only a tiny minority of them seem to develop multiple sclerosis later in life. But it suggests that multiple sclerosis is like long EBV, maybe. The same way that we understand there to be COVID, which lots of people get, and then a small minority of them get long COVID, the long virus. Eli, what do you think is the most, or what are the most significant implications of this discovery? For a long time, we've, uh, you know, multiple sclerosis is a autoimmune disease, right? And there are a lot of autoimmune disease, and we kind of don't understand how they work, right? That sort of the autoimmune, I would even say it's an autoimmune hypothesis, right? That it's our body just like sort of like fighting itself. Um, but if mono, or if, uh, if multiple sclerosis is caused by EBV, it raises the possibility that maybe a lot of the diseases that we think of as autoimmune, maybe they are, maybe the etiology actually is pathological, maybe they're pathogenic diseases. Which just, just for clarity, pathogenic disease means it's a disease that comes from a bacteria or virus. Oh, exactly. Right? So it, like, it lingers in our system for a while, the same way that we're familiar with the concept of long COVID. You know, people get COVID, it lingers for a while, and then it causes a range of things like, you know, brain fog or some kind of muscle weakness that we don't necessarily, it might be a little bit different from the immediate effects of COVID, but we consider it a part of long COVID. So maybe there's a bunch of diseases that have specific names like multiple sclerosis, but they're actually just long viruses or long bacteria. Exactly. Or or maybe even not long. Uh, maybe it's just, we don't know. We just have never found uh, a pathogen. Right. Like we, we like it could, could be just it could be the, the non long version of some virus as well. Um, and so like, you know, yeah, I think, a, you know, a promising avenue would be for anybody that has a mystery disease or a disease where we don't uh, you know, we don't know the cause. Like we should be like screening their blood and their other bodily fluids for and just like genetic sequence everything you find. Right. If we if we could genetic sequence everything we find in all of these patients. Um, that might lead us to some more discoveries of, well, actually these, you know, this thing that we thought was autoimmune was, you know, it's like be becoming clear, right? It's, there's, there's another pathogen that causes it. So I think we're, we're, I think we're, we're not at the end of, uh, sort of the, the sort of figuring out, uh, the, the, the role of pathogens. To me, it's like, all right. There's lots of research on uh, treating MS, uh, dealing with MS, which, you know, it results in nerve damage, which disrupts sort of communication between the brain and the body. There's certain ways that you can think about treating a disease like that, whether it's these the the treatments work on the immune system or the treatments do something about um, about nerve communication. But with this knowledge, it might be the case that the clearest thing to do 
is to get vaccinologists to work on a vaccine against Epstein-Barr virus, which up to now was like, I don't know, kind of important to do. Mononucleosis is a nuisance, but multiple sclerosis is much more of a problem than mono. So this has clarified the, the cost of EBV on the human population such that it might profitably redirect a lot of investment toward uh, eradicating um, EBV from the human population. Is that right? Yeah, that's, that's 100% right. You know, it's interesting, like with MS, there's all kinds of ideas of like how you could treat it, right? Like like uh, people are saying like, oh, I had MS and I, you know, ate a bunch of vegetables and, you know, and sort of changed my diet in some way and that helped it get better. And and like we still like that may or may not be true, right? We don't have a good way of evaluating that because um, we because we don't fully understand the causes. But if it but if it is a a virus and you know uh, you know of course what you eat affects your immune system, like that starts some of these stories start to make sense in a way that could be um, that could be made consistent with sort of like scientific observation as well. I want to move on to another discovery that has a little bit of tie-in with the pandemic, and that is that we are very clearly in a golden age of vaccine research and maybe also vaccine production. There were a range of breakthroughs in the world of vaccines in the last year. Uh, there was a record, uh, or one of the most successful trials for any vaccine in malaria came out this year um, in September. Uh, Oxford University scientists developed this malaria vaccine um, small trial, 450 children in Burkina Faso, but it found that three doses of the vaccine plus a booster shot was up to 80% effective at preventing infection. Um, I mean, that is remarkable because malaria kills around 40,000 people every year, many of them children. It's not caused by a virus. It's caused by a plasmodium, which has so far been very difficult to vaccinate but these scientists from Oxford uh, seem to have some success in coming up with a, uh, a, a successful vaccine candidate. Another really interesting breakthrough in vaccines this year came uh, against the flu. There was an experimental flu vaccine that was found to be protective against all known types of flu in animals. Now, I think every year, we get a flu shot, and that flu shot is is bespoke to the kind of flu that is circulating. And the influenza virus family has 20 lineages, and there are a bunch of strains under all those lineages, so we have to change the flu recipe every single year. If this vaccine worked, it would essentially lower the mortality ceiling of every kind of flu that we could possibly get in all the years to come, which would make a Spanish flu uh, epidemic extremely unlikely. So those are some of the vaccine breakthroughs that we had this year. Eli, which of them do you consider most interesting, most important? Well, I think, uh, you know, malaria is just such a huge killer in, uh, in, in all of the sort of the tropics um, that it's, it's incredibly important that we've made uh, that advance. I think one thing that we're learning is that, you know, not all, uh, not all antibodies are the same, right? You can, you can have two different people who are exposed to the same disease and they're going to like, their bodies might make slightly different antibodies uh, in response to that, to that virus or, or the bacterium or, or whatever it is. Um, and, and so one of the things we're learning is you can make, you, there, you can target better and, and, and worse antibodies, right? And so, so being able to design uh, a vaccine that um, 
that generates a, an immune response, an antibody um, that attacks like a conserved part of the virus, right? A, a part of the virus that doesn't mutate uh, very, very much. Uh, you know, that is that is just like, that's a playbook that we can do over and over again. There's not that many families of viruses, uh, you know, in, in the world that, that infect humans. Um, and we could do it potentially on all of them, right? Like this is like, we're getting to the point where viral infection might not be a thing that we have to live with in the next, you know, say two decades, right? Like, like and people are talking about, we could get rid of the common cold, right? And, and, and I think there's all kinds of questions about, um, you know, do, do we need uh, occasional viral insults to our immune system to like keep our immune system sort of active, right? I think, I think that's the kind of question that we're going to be facing because we have so many tools uh, being developed that make us uh, able to be, make more effective vaccines. That's great. Yeah, I, I think, you know, even if we don't fully eradicate viruses. I think what's interesting about this particular flu vaccine is that, and the, all the articles that I read were very careful to point this out, this does not make it so that you cannot catch the 2023 flu or the 2024 flu or the 2025 flu, which by the way, are almost certainly going to be different strains. Rather, it makes all of those strains significantly less lethal. So something like the Spanish flu, uh, the Spanish uh, uh, flu pandemic would be basically impossible if we could do something like this for the influenza family, for plasmodia like malaria, for coronavirus as a family, not just this novel coronavirus, but for the family. It would mean with these sort of like family level mortality lowering, you know, pan vaccines that yes, people might in this future that I'm sketching out, they might still get sick, but we would turn everything into the common cold or something like it, right? No coronavirus would kill 10% of people over 80. No influenza would kill 100,000, 200,000 people a year, or in the cases of 1920, millions of people throughout the world. Everything would be a little bit more moderate. Um, is it, like is is that future like also something that could come into focus? I mean, yeah, it's very plausible, but like, but I think it would be shocking to me if people didn't go after even the common cold, right? Like, like, uh, you know, think about, you know, how much, uh, dur during sort of cold and flu season, like people just missing work and stuff like the, the economic cost of that. Um, I, I would be surprised if nobody, nobody goes after it, right? People are going to want protection, I think. Well, I don't know. People didn't want protection from COVID, right, in the vaccine. So, so maybe maybe they won't want uh, vaccines for everything. Yeah, half but, half <laughs> of the half of the adults over forty five of particular yeah political ideology in this country weren't particularly eager. But um, yes. yeah, the, the rest of the country was relatively eager, and people around the world were decently eager. Yes, exactly. Um, what can you help me understand? Because you know, before I go like way out over my skis and get way too excited about the future of ending all the viruses, like. Um, Obviously, there's all sorts of scenarios in which we might be in a kind of, um, you know, they talk about like AI summers and AI winters. There's periods where the technology sprints forward and the period where the technology doesn't. Um, it's possible that right now we're in a bit of a vaccinology summer. And in a few years, we might be in a vaccinology winter and realize, wow, it's actually really, really difficult to invent all of these, you know, pan-coronaviruses and pan-influenza viruses. What would you say we learned in the pandemic 
that is responsible for this summer that we're experiencing in antiviral vaccinology? I think it's I think it's mainly that we can go faster than the sort of the state of the art was before. Um, you know, I, I wrote a piece at the beginning of the pandemic on how, you know, what we could do to accelerate uh, vaccine approvals. And, and, um, and I thought we should just, you know, once once somebody, a credible company had a candidate, we should let people try it, right? Like if they, you know, the, you need data uh, one way or the other, you need to have guinea pigs. If people want to do informed consent and like get uh, a jab uh, of an mRNA vaccine that's unproven, like they should have been allowed to. That was that was my argument because I was worried that it was going to take years. Uh, the sort of the it was very common before COVID to have a vaccine take twenty five years to 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 like be fully developed, go through all the trials and so on. Uh, you know, uh, twenty five years uh, m- might have been on the high side, but it, it was never never under a year, right? And and uh, and and I thought we needed to just accelerate the whole process. Now, we did, we, you know, we unfortunately, you know, we kept the, the clinical trial re- uh, requirement, but somehow we made it through a lot faster. Uh, you know, it helps that a lot of the people um, who got the vaccine were exposed, uh, you know, naturally. We didn't have challenge trials for the most part, but we just had an epidemic raging, right? A pandemic raging. And that, enabled us to go go faster. But even without that, I think we can there's a lot of time that we can cut off the development cycle. And so so anyway, so I think it's I don't think it is like a, a summer winter kind of thing. I think it's it's here to stay that we're gonna have a lot of progress. And there's just so many tools coming down the pike in in biology. Like the the labs are getting so advanced. They're able to do so many interesting things that it would be it would be surprising if uh there was a slowdown right the 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 big obstacle is like what can you get approved and what you know what can make it all the way through the clinical trials and 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 to consumers um but you know the the scientists in the labs they're like wizards man um they're they're doing they're doing so much exciting stuff I'm glad you ended on that. The fact that the science is moving very, very quickly, we need to find a way for policy to move quickly too. Um, I have a piece in the magazine that comes out, I think the day this podcast comes out, called The Eureka Theory of Progress is Wrong. And I tell a story of Operation Warp Speed and exactly how it worked. And I say, what, what would it mean to have an Operation Warp Speed for some other biological crisis that we recognize. Let's say Operation Warp Speed for cancer. What would that mean? Well, on the one hand, it would mean spending more money on research, right? Operation Warp Speed said, here's a bunch of money we're willing to spend on any of the pharmaceutical companies that come out with the vaccine in mRNA or attenuated, et cetera. We're going to spend money directly on the production of the material. But also it turned what you described as this 10 to 30 year obstacle course for new vaccines into a glide path. It's like, we're going to make this possible in six months. So what would it mean to do that for cancer? And I talked to Heidi Williams at Stanford and the Institute for Progress about this amazing paper she um, uh, co-authored about how since the war on cancer was declared, 1971, Richard Nixon, the U.S. has way more late stage cancer treatment pills and almost no cancer prevention medicine. So a ton of pills you can take when you're on stage three, stage four, but not a lot of cancer prevention. Why? Well, one answer she said is that cancer prevention 
clinical trials take forever, right? Because like if you take a, a you know a, a lung cancer prevention pill at twenty, you might not know until you're sixty if it's actually prevented you know your lung cancer seventy eighty. And she said, you know, we we have a solution for heart disease. Um, we have surrogate endpoints, which is a wonky term for, we have short-term proxies. You take a pill, we say, is your cholesterol going down? Is your blood pressure going down? And we're going to infer that if it is, this will prevent a heart disease later. If we could find a way to develop these short-term proxies for cancer prevention in clinical trials, we could have short clinical trials for multi-decade cancer prevention medicines, which would mean an explosion of cancer prevention. Um, therapies. You wouldn't even need any kind of revolution on the invention side. Scientists could keep doing exactly what they're doing, and we could like 10x the number of cancer prevention pills that Americans can take. And so going through that little bit of research made me really optimistic that you know these scientists are doing incredible work, and we need to learn from Operation Warp Speed how to uh, get little innovations on the policy side to make this world abundant in anti-cancer therapies. Let's move on to clean energy. You have taught me a lot about geothermal energy, which basically means drilling deep into the ground to use the Earth's heat. Pretty much it's, it's geothermally heated water for power. And geothermal is such a cool energy source because it's more consistent than wind or solar. The middle of the Earth is always hot in a way that the wind isn't always blowing. And it doesn't have the waste concerns of nuclear, but the problem is that there's some parts of the world that are fantastic for geothermal, like Iceland, and there's other parts of the, of the world that are not good for geothermal because it takes so long and so hard to dig to that part of the Earth's crust that has the geothermally heated water. You told me about a solution to this problem. Tell me about that solution. Yeah, of course. So uh, so in my day job, uh, you know, I, I spend a lot of time looking at technologies and uh, and diving deep into them. And geothermal is one of those. And I got so excited about this uh, particular solution that I actually ended up investing personally. So uh, so, the, so the, this is a company called Quaze. Uh, they're a sp spin out of MIT. And they took something out of the fusion lab. So fusion, uh, to sort of feed the, the, the fusion uh, reaction, uh, scientists have this tool called a gyrotron that, that uh, produces millimeter wave energy. And what Quaze is doing is Sorry, they can you say, just, can, okay, can you just like 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 I'm in sixth grade? What is millimeter wave energy? Millimeter wave energy is uh, is like radio energy. So so like light is radioelectric energy, right? It's, a, it's photons, right? Photons. Uh, so visible light is in the uh, is in the 400 to 700 nanometer uh, wavelength range. Right. And so imagine photons, instead of being in that spectrum, they're just moving in the millimeter uh, sort of uh, range of, uh, of a spectrum. Right. So that's 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 really it. it's light that's been the, the wavelength has been is longer than light. Right. It's photons, though. It's a, it's exactly the same as uh, same particle. Right. Um, and so so what they figured out is you know, that you can drill uh, mechanically very well until, you know, through the sedimentary rock and so on. But at some point, you hit basement rock. And if you take uh, a gyrotron at the surface and point it down into the ground and have like sort of a corrugated steel tube that sort of guides the waves down, what you can do is produce a concentration of millimeter wave energy at the bottom of the hole that vaporizes the granite and, and uh, you know, 
just completely destroys it. The ashes, like, sort of, you know, have to, you have to think about, like, how do you circulate uh, uh, a gas there to pull the ash out? But you vaporize granite, you, uh, you melt the side of the hole so that it becomes like a liner, so it becomes 10 times stronger than the surrounding rock. Um, that, you know, that helps with... Uh, normally, when you drill, you have to do some sort of casing to to preserve well integrity, make sure there's no leaks and so on. So this liner is like automatically formed, and you can just go and go and go deeper and deeper. Is this right? kind and of so, like? And this is just because I finished Andorra a couple of days ago. It's kind of like a tiny Death Star, but used for good, right? It like it uses, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, right? Like the Death Star it, just it's like directed energy. Yeah, right. It's just directed energy. It destroys a town, destroys a planet. In this case, we're not trying to destroy a town, thankfully. We're trying to destroy a very concentrated uh, uh, bit of granite that is deep in the ground. It is really, really hard. It's otherwise very difficult to drill through given the temperatures and the pressure of being that far underground. You shoot it with this sort of super fancy special laser. It totally obliterates it and gets us clean access to actual geothermal power. That's right. So, so it's, uh, technically, it's not a laser, but uh, but it's a it's an energy. Uh, it's a concentrated like energy ray, right? Uh, that that um, that you create uh, using this waveguide, and yes, it, it vaporizes. It basically makes it much cheaper to you know when it when it comes to fruition, right? It's 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 going to be much cheaper to drill very very deep, right? There, there. I mean, Quaze is talking about we could drill like up to twenty kilometers of depth. With, with this kind of thing, which is which is deep enough to get to the temperatures you need to produce geothermal literally anywhere on the planet. So let's get excited about this and then let's come back down to earth on this. In the excitement category, it's like, okay, we're used to energy being geographically specific. Like windy places are good for wind power and sunny places are good for solar power. And there's parts of the world that are kind of hard to see just from walking around like Texas and Saudi Arabia that underground, it turns out they're incredible for their oil resources and so they're energy rich. But all of the planet is over the core of the planet. Like by definition, that's how a sphere works. And so if we had some technology for drilling really, really deeply into the planet, it could turn any patch of land into a piece, a territory that is as valuable for geothermal as like the Texas or Saudi Arabia lands are for oil. Like that's that's incredible to think about. Like you wave a magic wand over the world and it's all Saudi Arabia for oil, except the oil isn't oil and it has no uh, uh, carbon emissions. Like. That's yeah, a, anybody anybody can be Iceland, right? Like anyone any, can anybody be Iceland. can and so and Iceland is like the world leader in energy production per capita and they have, you know, uh they have a, you know, aluminum uh production on on the island like way out of proportion to their population size. They're like I think the the top per capita producer of aluminum. I mean, it's just because that's an energy electricity intensive industry and they have such cheap energy uh, availability. So so yes, anybody can be Iceland. So anyways, we're making the entire planet Iceland. Everyone's Iceland. There's abundant energy. There's abundant electricity. It opens up all these incredible venues for new things we can do that take a lot of energy, whether it's the desalinization of water or just, you know, running a perfectly electric economy. All right, that's the vision. That's all very cool. Back to reality, what are the bottlenecks, right? This technology isn't everywhere. Like technically it's it's almost nowhere right now. It's very nascent. So what are the clear bottlenecks to making something like this uh, cheap and available and scaled? So so with Quay specifically, like they're still developing this tool that will allow them to drill very deep, 
right? So, so they are they're doing lab tests, they're doing field tests, uh, but it's still under development. With the industry more generally, um, I think that the biggest challenge is that sort of for near term uh, deployment, you the the best resources overlap significantly with federal land. So it's so it's just uh, most of the in, in the U.S. most of the, the the sort of the shallowest geothermal resources happen to be in the western half of the United States, of which the federal government owns a huge chunk of. And so, to if you want to sort of get started, and I believe that this is an industry that will be characterized by very much by learning by doing. Right, you're going to have to. You're going to. The more we deploy geothermal energy, the more the cost is going to come down. And so you got to start somewhere, and that somewhere ideally would be would happen to be on federal land. But it's just such a challenge to get, uh, you know, these these wells permitted on on federal land, which is kind of crazy because um, it's the same equipment. You know, for for the mechanical drilling, it's the same equipment as you're using in oil and gas. Right. It's, it's so it's it's in same workforce, same same techniques, et cetera. And you can get an oil and gas well approved in about two weeks on federal land. And it takes like two years to do geothermal. So there are scientific bottlenecks here. We need to figure out how to get this super fancy laser that isn't actually a laser to work. And there's also policy bottlenecks. We need better laws in this country that allow us to innovate in places where geothermal is where the 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 fruit is lowest hanging when it comes to figuring out exactly how to get this technology off the ground and that requires regulatory changes exactly yeah i, I and i and i do I, I am optimistic that like the administration hears us on this and and they you know they they want to do something about it we'll see we've saved the best for last at least according to me um i am really really excited about chat gpt i have loved playing around with this toy. Uh, the economist Larry Summers went about as far as one can possibly go when it comes to the potential of this technology when he said that ChatGPT is a breakthrough on par with electricity. I am prepared to defend why I think this technology is so cool and with continued exponential growth could be so revolutionary. Tell me what, tell me one thing that impresses you about ChatGPT and what leaves you cold about this technology. Um, yeah, so I was using it last night to just write, you know, collaboratively write bedtime stories with my kids, right? So I was like, sit down with my kids, be like, okay, let's prompt ChatGPT. What What do you want a story about? You know, uh, you know, one of them wants to be a princess. One of them wants to be a knight. They really like Minecraft. We can say, okay, they're in Minecraft, uh, in the Minecraft world, and we can just like get a story written for us on the spot, right? It's like, it's like sort of like unlimited content production right it's just you know on on demand um so so i think it is really exciting technically it's a huge breakthrough by the way chat gpt is not yet gpt4 which is on the verge of release and just another step forward so so it's just it's just going to get even even better uh you know in, in in the coming uh months i think um yeah the the thing that it doesn't leave me cold, but I th- the, the the place where I think a lot of people are are overstating the importance is that some of the you know some of the content can be a little bland, right? It it is taking sort of the entire English language corpus uh, that it's using for training, and it's sort of like 
averaging over it, right? Uh, Unless you're sort of like a prompting wizard, right? It's hard to get it to say anything interesting. And so it is not a replacement for, uh, you know, the writers that we read online at The Atlantic, uh, such as Derek Thompson, uh, who say something, you know, interesting and unexpected in every article, right? Whereas, you know, like, I think, I think it, so it, chat GPT, as far as I can tell, like, can't do that. Like, I, you know, I, I tr- try to prompt it for like, you know, give me a shocking twist at the end of the story, but also make sure that there's foreshadowed kind of earlier in a non-obvious way. And it just doesn't have a concept of, of a lot of that. Um, so, so yeah, I think it will be, I think it will do amazing things. And I think, I think on the, on the imaging side as well, it's like incredible, uh, incredible capabilities uh, being developed. And by the way, I mean, the thing that I think is going to shock people in the next, uh, in the coming, like, uh, you know, weeks or, or months on the imaging side is uh, people are going to learn about model distillation, right? You can, you can distill these imaging models into, you start, you start with a big model and then use that to train a smaller model that can generate an image in like under a second on your laptop without needing to use a server, Step back. What did, what did, yeah, give me, tell me the full story of that. Just like create a full example of what you're talking about. Yeah. So, so right now you can download like the stable diffusion model on your laptop and use it to generate an image. Stable diffusion for people listening, right, is one of these text to image generators. So you enter a text like Derek talking to Eli on an exoplanet using cups and strings in the style of Dali. And it will like, weirdly enough do this in like a matter of seconds it'll be like pretty good it'll be it'll you know so for for stable diffusion at least on my laptop it's like 30 seconds or more to generate uh one image right and then then okay then i have to fix the prompt right and i and i um i so i adjust the prompt based on on the results and then uh, maybe i want to adjust it again so so it, it is like a feels like very laggy and back and forth uh that you have to do this um, so with a distilled model, you can get a, on the same hardware, you can get a result in like under a second. So I could enter a prompt, press enter, immediately see the image that I want or that I thought I wanted, adjust the prompt, hit enter. Another second goes by, like I see the image again. And so just for like going back and forth with this model and then, and then maybe at the end, once I find the prompt I want, I go back to the full model and, and do the bigger, uh, the, the bigger model for the final render or whatever. But like, I think this is, is going to be a tool that right now uh, for, for like for chat GPT, for instance, you're doing this on open AI's servers. Right. And, and I think that model distillation is going to allow us to do a lot of these generative stuff on local hardware, on our, uh, on our just like consumer grade laptops. So I think it's going to be really exciting. Larry Summers called it like, a caddy for creative work, which I thought was actually a pretty good metaphor. Like the caddy is not considered the talent, right? But still it can be essential, not only to have someone carry the clubs, but to advise on which club to use, to think about exactly how do I hit this? What do we think is the pitch? I actually don't even play golf. I don't know why I'm elaborating on this metaphor, but I assume that's what people use caddies to do. I've seen enough movies of golf. I, I see that's already how I use chat GPT. Um, you know, Noah Smith uh, had the metaphor of sandwiching. You have an idea for a prompt. 
I prompt ChatGPT, it sends me back an answer, I edit the answer, that's actually what I put in my article. And so much of writing are these little micro questions that occur to me as I'm writing a longer piece. Like, if I'm writing something about, you know, generative pre-trained transformers, and I say, wait, what exactly is that? And I ask GPT, what is this technology? How, give me a metaphor to explain GPT to a ninth grader. It will do that. Now, it might not be A+, plus, it might be C+, plus, but then I get the prompt and I can edit it back into something that I consider, I consider appropriate. Um, you said there was another breakthrough in AI that makes you even more excited about this AI summer that we're in. And I think it's important to be clear that this year was all about generative AI, but last year, two years ago, it was about, uh, uh, was it AlphaFold? Yeah, AlphaFold, the AI Pro at Google. Protein folding. Protein yeah. folding, right. The ability to anticipate the precise structure of any protein in the world and the incredible frontiers that that opened up in the future of protein uh, proteomics. So it's every year AI is showing like a little different part of its body to say like, you know, this is, this is what I'm capable of. And tell me why you're so interested in this other uh, frontier inside of the AI family called precise atom manipulation. What the hell is that? Yeah, sure. So I think to to give a little background, I think about AI in sort of a two by two matrix, right? Or, or, or two two dimensions. Um, and and so one of them is is it superhuman performance or is it subhuman performance, right? Uh, so so uh, so like protein folding, like it's definitely superhuman performance. We can't do that at all, right? Whereas like GPT chat or chat GPT, like it's, it's subhuman performance in the sense it's like, it's not as good as Derek Thompson at writing. Um, but, and then, and then also like the dimension, the other dimension is like economically useful or not. Right. And so, um, so like we, so we have chess AIs that are, uh, superhuman performance, but not economically useful, uh, not, not in a significant way. Whereas, you know, something like writing or art potentially could be useful, even if it's subhuman performance, because like you said, it's like a caddy. Uh, so I'm really interested in, in sort of like the, uh, the, the economically useful and, and superhuman performance, uh, quadrant, uh, of, of that. And I think protein folding is one of them. Um, and I think, you know, maybe this sort of atom manipulation is another one. So, um, so one of the, one of the technologies that could be the most revolutionary for humanity is the productive nanotechnology, the ability to actually start designing things by placing atoms, uh, exactly where we want them to be right in, in, in molecules and creating, um, creating things, designing things from the ground up at the atomic scale, we could basically create, you know, stuff, I mean, the, the theorists behind this say like almost mad stuff with almost magical properties. Give me an example. Uh, like you could have a room filled with nanobots that when you kind of make a motion to sit down, a couch forms under you. Right. So like, I mean, like that is just, it's just wild. Right. Uh, you could have, um, uh, I, I did a calculation that some of the motors that people have designed um, that you could take like the Tesla Model S Plaid motor and you could do that amount of power output in the size of 12 grains of sand. Right. Like th this is what you can I do. Mean, you, it's, you, it's, it, it's, it's like hearing about these possibilities. It's almost like hearing about like, um, like the size of the universe or hearing about like string theory. Exactly. It's just like, it's so incomprehensible. It's like, I guess. Exactly. Wow. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so this is like, you know, I think it is like 
kind of magical. Like some of the theorists are hand wavy at times, right? And and I and I would always say like you know like okay like take it take it with some grain of salt. But it does seem to follow from like totally standard chemistry and physics that this is possible. And so what this team did with AI is is it's not quite that, but they're they're working on sort of being able to manipulate individual atoms. And and sort of the if you think about like moving an atom like with like with like tiny tweezers or like a, a little stylus, right? That you're like poking it, right? There's gonna be all kinds of quantum effects <laughs> if if you're on the tip, uh, because you're you're operating at such a small scale that it's it's very hard to predict all the forces and the the movements that are going to happen. And and so what they are doing in this is they developed an AI that like shows them how to move the tip uh, and and how to poke atoms around and move them around. So this is not yet creating molecules with atoms. So these are not, to anybody who knows like they're not covalent bonds. So you're not making molecules. You're moving individual atoms around on top of a crystal, which is something that we have done before, but just it was very hard. So you have there's there's a famous historical example of a team at IBM that had some I believe it was xenon atoms and they they spelled out the word IBM with just like <laughs> xenon atoms uh, on on a on a crystal surface, right? And so so th- that's more like what what they're doing in this example. But hey, you got to start somewhere. And I think uh, you know being able to actually design stuff and 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 make it and engineer stuff at the atomic level with that level of precision that that it could be the biggest game changer of all for humanity. What's so interesting about that is it sounds like. AI and machine learning is being used in this case as a tool that unlocks the key to an entire new kingdom that is nanotechnology. Like we do not have in our own mammalian corporeal bodies the ability to enter this world. This world is only accessible by developing machine learning technologies that allow us to do extremely precise, quasi-magical things with atoms. But once we unlock that door with AI, what's beyond that door is is unimaginably awesome. And it's not like disappearing into the metaverse. It's new things that we could build in the physical world that are totally mind-blowing. As you were talking, I will say, at this point, ChatGPT seems like Pathetic. It's like this seems like like it feels like, like compared to this, it's like some 1600s technology. But that said, this is one of the reasons why I find ChatGPT so thrilling for my work. I just asked ChatGPT. I just typed in precise atom manipulation, and it gave me a little definition. And then I entered the abstract of the paper that you sent me about this, and it did a pretty good job summarizing the abstract. And then I said, what are some of the coolest and most interesting implications of atomic scale manipulation for the future of technology? And it says. Precise atom manipulation could enable the creation of ultra-efficient energy storage materials, more powerful computer processors, and highly sensitive medical diagnostic tools. So I said, what kind of highly sensitive medical diagnostic tools? What could highly sensitive, what, what could highly sensitive medical diagnostic tools made with this technology, atomic scale manufacturing, do for people? And it says, detect very low levels of various biomarkers in a person's blood or bodily fluids allow for early detection of diseases such as cancer, et cetera, et cetera, right? So now I'm thinking, oh, right, another aspect of of this precise atom manipulation you're talking about might be not just to create um, new 
products in the physical world around us, but to create new products within us that teach us about what's going on in our bodies. So I would like to make a plug both for your technology and for my uh, love affair for ChatGPT. This is a little bit, Astro Tellers calls it a dumb genie, right? It's not that creative. It's not that interesting. But there's a lot of questions that we dumb people have that also aren't that interesting. And it's really nice to have this sort of bespoke Wikipedia genie at our fingertips that can just explain these kind of questions to us. So I find your example magical. And I also found this lesser capability of ChatGPT magical in this case. And it's still getting better, right? That's the thing to, to remember is that it's just going to keep improving. So it, it yeah, I, 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 I do agree that it's like a significant breakthrough. Eli, Dorado, thank you very, very much. I think we'll just have you on every single year to walk us through the most interesting things happening in science and tech, because this is always one of my favorite pods to do. Thank you very much, man. Happy holidays, and I'll see you soon. Yeah, you too. Thank you for listening. Plain English is produced by Devin Manzi. If you like the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Give us a five-star rating, leave a review, and don't forget to check out our TikTok at Plain English underscore. That's at Plain English underscore on TikTok.